Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast, where I am joined by Nathan Warden. At Nathan Warden on both Twitter and Common Stock, we talk about his experience, how he found Common Stock as he is the community manager of Common Stock currently, the importance of discussions around investment ideas and how disagreement is a powerful, powerful weapon slash tool, the market pitching game he runs where I'm actually going to be a contestant on May 13th. So be sure to look out for me tweeting out that link and follow at Nathan Warden on Twitter and Common Stock to see him tweeting about that as well. And then we also get into investing trends that he sees and likes a little bit about uh, the Canadian oil mafia, a little Bitcoin versus Ethereum debate between himself and myself. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we get kind of into our views on the overall crypto space, but not getting too deep into it. And then we also talk a little bit about how men and women invest differently and where Nathan has been right and where he's been wrong in the market. Uh, you know, it's not always easy to admit when you're wrong, but Sometimes you are, and it's not always the easiest thing to invest and get everything completely right. But as always, this podcast does not provide any sort of financial advice. Uh, in no way, shape, or form are Nathan or I giving any financial advice. All the equities owned, we disclose all the ones that we currently own and that are discussed within this podcast. And like I said, everything that is said here is strictly myself and Nathan's opinion does not reflect common stock or our employer's opinion. Um, both Nathan and I are not financial advisors, so please, please, please do your own research. And like I said before, not financial advice, not financial advice. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. All right, we are back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. I am joined with Nathan Morden. Nathan, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. So I think we got a we got a big slate ahead, a lot of stuff uh, to talk about, but let's take it back to the beginning. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you get started in investing? And, uh, you know, what, what uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. How, how did you find it and what's your relationship with it right now? Yeah. So I started investing back in 2013. Um, basically, the uh, overarching you know, life philosophy that I had back then led me to wanting to invest. I basically was a, a wedding photographer um, and also uh, a resident advisor in college. And back at that time, I was living super frugally, got kind of very into the, um, the fire kind of uh, uh, financially independent, retire early. There's lots of different um, critiques of that movement. Back at the time, I was very into that and living a frugal lifestyle, um, earning money, doing wedding photography, and just like not spending any of it. Uh, housing was paid for because it was an RA. And so investing is something that I got into simply because of the situation that I was in, um, having extra funds and thinking about the long term and how that could um, create you know, freedom. And then also the books and ideas I was exposed to things like the richest man in Babylon, um, the ideas that kind of lead you towards understanding how the world works and money works, how capital begets capital, uh, compound investment, 
you know, compounding returns is one of the most powerful things in the world. And so uh, in 2013, that was like, I think a year before I, that was that was a year I graduated college. I'd started um, investing a little bit before that, but uh, got into investing just simply because of life philosophy and because I was blessed with the ability to do so um, and have, you know, been a steady uh, dollar cost averager with, you know, specific bigger bets throughout the years. Uh, currently, I am a community manager at Common Stock, and I'm very passionate about uh, that space. Other kind of random things of note along the line, I, I got my MBA, um, graduated 2018. And so I'm just very interested in markets, human psychology, um, and the ways that the world is becoming a better place because people are entrepreneurs and trying to solve problems for other people and how that can improve everyone's standard of living. And, you know, the, the innovation that we create for each other is something that generates returns, but also makes the world a better place. And so I'm very excited about investing for a lot of different reasons. That's awesome. So that's, that's, a, that's great. Yeah, very, uh, you know, drawn out and well thought out answer too. So um, let's get into common stock. So how did you find common stock and how did you, uh, you know, get this position as a community manager there? Yeah, so I, I'm a, definitely a lifelong learner. And one thing I was doing in 2020 during the pandemic, or actually before that, leading into it was a, a year long boot camp learning software engineering. And one of the things that I wanted to do was build a platform that was kind of a, a social investing app. I In my final project for that program, I built a stock scoreboard, just simply pulling down data and tracking returns and was thinking like the, the bigger picture would be to add a social element to that. As I was building that, uh, the API that I was using to pull down the data, uh, it's IEX Cloud. They have a testimonial quote on their website from David McDonough from Common Stock saying, you know, oh, IEX Cloud helps us build our social investing app. And I was like, wait, that's that's what I want to build. That sounds cool. So I Googled it. And I every time I kind of go down a rabbit hole, I really <laughs> click everything, try and find, um, you know, as much as I can about it. And the way that Google was indexing common stock site was basically what happened was that the engineers had pushed the live version of the 2.0 common stock um, version like 10 minutes before I found it. So even David, the CEO, didn't know that it was live and the engineers weren't even really aware that Google had indexed it in a way that, you know, public facing people could just click on it and find it. So I find, I find common stock, I, I jump in, it's like a very bare bones site, but I like intuitively understand that, you know, right from the beginning that this is a, a cool way to connect people around stocks in the markets. And so I just started DMing people just immediately. I was like, oh, this is cool. I see, you know, a, a trade. So, you know, Grant, like, why did you trade Square? And on the back end, you know, everyone's like, is this a hacker? Like, who is this guy? Like, we, is this even live? Like, how can people even get into common stock at the moment? And so uh, they let me know later, like, they were all just like trying to figure out who I was and like, if I was a hacker. Um, so they started answering my questions and they were like, hey, does anyone have a good thesis for Square? Because they were just testing out stuff. Um, they were just like, you know, buying and selling Square. And uh, one of them had sold Square. And I was like, so why are you selling? And he's like, I don't know. I'm just testing the site. I don't actually have a thesis for it. Um, but I mean, he didn't tell me that they, they were just kind of like figuring out who I was essentially the, uh, it was just like the right place, right time thing. Um, and also right person, because I knew exactly like the power of what they were trying to do. And 
because I, I saw that it was like such an early app, I started posting, you know, every day for like four, five, six months. Um, just being a super user, welcoming new people in, kind of explaining to people like what this could be. Um, and, you know, started making group chats for different themes and different investing strategies and uh, just being very, very active. Um, and so eventually, after about 10 months of just doing that incredibly often, uh, they reached out and said, like, hey, can you keep doing that uh, full time? And, and that is how I became an a employee, I think, number 17 at Common Stock. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, everybody that's kind of interacted uh, somewhat in FinTwit uh, can kind of relate to see the, uh, you know, overarching need for maybe a little bit more long form because, you know, whether you're on Reddit or other places, uh, it doesn't seem like, you know, there's a good place to kind of mix your ideas and, and go back and forth like that. So um, did you have any experience on some of these other platforms? Uh, you know, maybe it's, on financial Twitter or on some subreddits that you found useful, um, but not quite as, as useful as common stock, um, but, but kind of gave you that idea that, all right, this is a, you know, some, something that's definitely needed in the market. Oh, totally. Yeah. Cause on its face, people would be like, well, why do we need a social investing app? There's, there's Reddit, there's financial Twitter, there's stock twits, <laughs> there's, there's Motley Fool, there's the Bogleheads, there, there's many financial communities on the internet, and there's lots of great discussion happening or terrible discussion. Um, but there, yeah, so so my experience of a lot of those other places is like, generally positive, like you see a lot of good information that's being passed around, but there's so much negative information as well. So much, um, like people trying to do pump and dumps, so much, uh, a lack of transparency, uh, and so the way that I kind of think about the the social investing space and what is needed is that there's not enough information about the people giving their opinions. You don't know enough about the person giving you the thesis to understand whether or not you should be taking it seriously. And you can judge by someone's ideas, whether they're being genuine or not, but it's it's a meta type of thinking that a lot of people don't do not because they they don't do it because they don't have time for it essentially right like they they read a thesis and they take it at face value um and and they don't take the extra step of thinking about why is this person presenting this thesis to me what kind of positions do they have in their portfolio that they might benefit from what they're trying to tell me um and you know there's tons of very obvious pump and dumps and then there's tons of way less obvious pump and dumps where someone presents a very well thought out thesis and the it's hard to understand where the 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 insidious information is in, in like some big long reddit post so what common stock is is by linking your brokerages to your profile and showing the verified positions that you have and the allocations that they have you can know so much more about a person's skin in the game and their incentives when they're telling you their ideas. There's no other place on the internet where you can get so much information about the information source that you're getting. And I just think that that is the way the world will be in 10 years. Like right now, there's so much red tape and so many, you know, disclosures that the financial industry has to do and regulations, right? So that it's not very well understood how important it is to know the positions of the person giving you the financial advices like that is going to take a lot of time to take hold. 
But the way that I like the vision that I think that we're headed towards is in 10 years, if we're not aware of a financial planner's own incentives, like whoever's giving you advice, you will want to know how their portfolio is positioned so that you can understand whether or not they are uh, incentivized to give you certain, you know, advice or not. Uh, it's just going to be commonplace to have our portfolios out in the open. And if they're not, it would be very suspect, like, what is this person trying to sell me and why? I can't see what's going on. So it's, it's going to be, uh, you're going to be expected to be extremely transparent in the future if you want to work in the financial industry where you're giving people uh, advice or research. That's just, I think, what will happen. And the only question is, like, how long will that take? And it, it could be quite a while, but I think that that's where we're moving. Yeah. So what kind of, uh, what kind of hurdles do you see? Um, you know, cause, uh, I, I guess foresee with, with sharing all that kind of information, uh, because, you know, generally speaking, I, I mean, at least from my parents' perspective and, you know, maybe a little bit of the older generation, uh, you know, you don't really disclose your holdings or anything like that. Um, but now it seems like it's a little bit more common with, you know, the content creators and, and everybody like that kind of discussing and, and like you said, you know, having more open source and open forums to discuss these ideas. Um, you know, I, I personally don't have my uh, brokerage account linked um, to common stock. I've been I've been mulling it over and I think I, I probably will eventually. Um, but uh, the one issue that I have right now is, is just like a security scare. Um, whereas I don't want my brokerage account to get hacked or anything like that. So um, I, I kind of answered one, well, maybe one part of the question where I think like that might be an issue, but what other issues do you foresee and how do you kind of get over the security um, you know, issue or worry that some people may have? Yeah. Well, first off, I want to say like, it's a completely like understandable perspective to be like, Hey, let me, let me wait on this. I think a lot of people are just waiting for the Lindy effect. Just how long can this go before, you know, I see that no big bad things happen before I feel like I can trust this thing. It's just purely like, let me not be the very first person to try this because like new things can, can go wrong. But like, so the way that this whole kind of thing is, is getting, developed, right? So Plaid is one of the big enablers of, of uh, brokerage connections and information. So a lot of banks actually use Plaid as a secure way to connect to financial apps. And they're, they're very good as far as security, you know, bank level encryption, the banks are using it. You know, you hear all the time about uh, rug pulls in the crypto space, right? You hear very, you never hear about um, Plaid being hacked or not, not working. So like, the and, and also common stock, uh, it, it is using Plaid for some brokerages, but it's even more secure uh, with direct with direct connections. So I think that the security issue is is one that's like the broad population will be somewhat slow to pick it up, just because it's a you know 2013 is when Plaid was founded. So anything that's started in the last decade, there's there's going to be a significant portion of the population that's not going to be an early adopter. Just that's the way behavior works. And as more time goes on and as, you know, no big issues occur, people are going to get more comfortable with it and it's just going to be more widespread. So I guess I would just say that, you know, 
you know, look around at where you're hearing about uh, data breaches and stuff. And uh, it's it's really it's happening in other areas, but not in in this like because uh, if banks are trusting it, then, you know, how secure how much do you trust your bank uh, is kind of the way that I would put it. And if you're trusting money to put in your bank, then you're it's the same kind of thing to be uh, linking up your brokerage account to, uh, you know, Plaid or uh, an app like Common Stock. But yeah, it's it. I, I don't. I think that people who are worried about that now, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I think that that's a totally legitimate concern, and uh, it's it's an, it's an okay thing, right? That like let someone else try it first. That's totally cool too. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you put it that way too, because uh, you know you're you're definitely understanding of of some of these concerns, and it'll just you know in the end make the the product better and make you able to you know voice the ideas and and maybe even the power behind uh, you know why you should connect your brokerage and and everything like that as well. Um, so that kind of leads me into my next question. So um, you know we've been kind of discussing common stock. Uh, and the power of it, but uh, how uh, in the setting of an investing conversation, do you think like, you know, being able to dictate both sides, uh, you know, kind of like common stock allows you to do to have like an open forum where, you know, you're tracking trades and things like that. And you can even, you know, write a memo or uh, essentially a thesis. Um, So how do you, uh, I guess, uh, see that, uh, you know, this whole, discussion forum of investing is not only going to help investors, um, but, you know, help the the passage of ideas back and forth. Yeah. So I think that like when it comes to helping ideas pass back and forth, it is so important to have forums where that is, that, that is encouraged. Right. And so there's already tons of forums where that's encouraged, but the thing that I'm excited about is, the culture of valuing collaborative disagreement and constructive discussion is something that doesn't really exist in other places. So when you say like both sides of the market, like markets can be very zero sum because a trade happens and usually one person is right and one person is wrong. You can look at it differently. Like both people can win if they, if something keeps going up and then they both sell and they get uh, you know, positive returns, but at the moment where you trade going forward, one person is probably going to be right. And one person is wrong. So it's very adversarial and it's very zero sum. However, um, I think that when it comes to discussing these ideas and understanding the person who's on the opposite side of the trade as you, there's a lot, of, you can learn the most from the person who sees the diametrically opposite view, viewpoint as you, Right. And if you are incentivized to see that person on the other side of the trade as an adversary, then you're turned off to understanding why they're taking that opposite viewpoint. And you don't need to necessarily to like agree, like come to a point where you agree with them because then you'd be making the opposite decision. But you should understand them. You should understand why they're taking the opposite viewpoint as you. And that makes you a better investor. It helps you understand what moves to make next. And what I think is that most investing platforms out there right now they harness that zero sum energy and they, they turn things into tribal nature and they, they suck out the engagement from these arguments that can happen. And they, they, they do that because it's, you know, engagement and uh, anger and arguments, they get a certain type of engagement, they get this energy and this tracking. 
but it's ultimately bad for the investing conversation in general because it incentivizes you to see the disagreement as a threat and to turn off the understanding um, reminder that like I want to be friends with the person who has a different perspective than me because ultimately, again, if I understand their position, it makes me stronger. So I think that what needs to happen is a social platform like Common Stock. What we're building is the culture where collaborative disagreement is encouraged and it's seen as a strength and not a weakness and a threat. I don't think people understand how valuable that is. Um, I, I think that that's such a better way to be introduced to investing. And it just it doesn't exist in other places because other platforms haven't thought critically about how important that is. They see the results and the engagement of creating arguments and they say, let's do more of that. Let's pit people against each other. And uh, what we really want to see is have people get better returns than they could have otherwise. And I think the way to do that is by incentivizing people uh, to see their blind spots and see their opposite traders as someone they can learn from and not fight with. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, one of the things that I try to do before I get into an investment is always look at the the bearish argument for any, you know, stock that, that I look into just to see if there's something that I'm missing. Um, and generally, before I kind of got into the weeds of common stock and maybe even Fintwit, um, because to be honest, I, I kind of just discovered this whole realm of, of Twitter and, and social media and just about maybe a year, year and a half ago. Um, so relatively new. Um, but uh, I would always look at just Google like arguments and just look at, you know, whatever square block bearish thesis, Apple bearish thesis, uh, just to see what some, some of these critics are saying. Um, and, you know, sometimes they have some biases or, or, you know, some sways and you don't necessarily know their background as well as kind of like you're saying with uh, common stock. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there's there's a place for it, for common stock and, you know, open forum discussion and agreements, uh, disagreements, uh, as well as agreements um, when it comes to you know, all kinds of investments, because, you know, like you said, the, the open forum sharing of ideas is definitely uh, very powerful. Um, so uh, it seems like you guys are experiencing a lot of growth recently as well. So it seems like more people are kind of coming into that idea and uh, seeing the value in that. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I, I hope that that is the case that, that you know, people are, are realizing that there's a better way to have a discussion. And that's kind of what's drawing them in. Uh, you know, I see examples every day where on Twitter, uh, someone will will ask a legitimate question. Like they're just trying to understand the uh, opposite thesis, just like you said, like looking for the bear argument, but it's interpreted, that question is interpreted as a threat, right? The person who said, I think that this stock is this, and the legitimate question is like, well, but what about this part of their balance sheet or, you know, what have you? And the response is like, well, you don't get it. Like you, you know, I shouldn't, there's no point in engaging with you because you'll never see the purpose or it's just, they're ships passing in the night that don't connect and no, nothing good happens. Well, one thing that I've seen, which is so cool is the same people acting on Twitter, having a conversation about the same thing. And then I see those same people coming over to common stock and like a lot of the people in common stock I know. And so there, there's certain nudges that as a community manager, I'll, I'll be like, Hey, why don't we try this conversation again? 
and the same people having the same conversation about the same company in one context on Twitter, they end up having a different discussion on common stock simply because the culture and the the setup and the assumption of the conversation is one where like, hey, let's try and learn versus, ooh, I think this person might be trying to uh, threaten me or or like the the intent, the the um, positive intent is not there on Twitter and it is on common stock and that can change the discussion for the better. Yeah, I definitely think, uh, you know, that the one negative of Twitter, it, you know, it's somewhat of a positive too, but the, the character limit, you know, the, the power, I think, between uh, common stock is that you kind of have the option for both. Um, so on the topic of, you know, investing discussions, you run the market game, which I'm actually going to be participating in on, um, I believe it's May 13th or whatever that Friday is, the second Friday in May. Um so, uh, yeah, you run that game. Um, so what, uh, how did you get the idea and, uh, you know, what are your thoughts overall and, and experience on running the, uh, market game? And I guess, uh, tell, tell the listeners who don't know w- what exactly that is. Totally. Yeah. So the market game is a term tournament style investing competition where six investors have three minutes each to give a quick investment pitch and then ask each other tough questions about why their their investment thesis is better than other people's. And then the audience, and this is done live on Zoom, and then the audience votes for the best pitch of the night. We've got two teams of three. Uh, each team of three gives their three-minute pitch, and they do the Q&A, and then they vote. And then two winners of each of those brackets then have one final vote to determine a winner of the night. So it's it's this uh, yeah tournament bracket style setup for an investing competition. The reason why I set it up and why I think it's important and, and fun and cool is I do think that so that, that, like there's so many things. So one of them is I like investing discussion face to face. I think a lot of times if you are on Twitter and you're going back and forth, you lose the humanity, you lose the understanding of who is on the other side talking. And so by meeting in one spot and talking face to face over Zoom, like you get a lot more uh context. And and again, it goes back to the whole thing of like knowing about the person who's speaking. I think that that's very valuable. So, so there's that the competitive aspect is, is just kind of for fun, right? Like I'm a competitive person and I want to win and do well. And so there's, there's that, but it's, it's really not about the winning. It's, it's about, you know, the feedback, right? Competition is fun uh, because there's so much feedback. When you go and you play a sport and you see the score, you can improve because there's metrics and measurements that tell you how you did. And so the competition aspect and the voting of which is the best uh, thesis is more about like, how am I resonating with the audience? Like, what am I saying that people are latching onto that they're voting for? And then I can also see a competitor, what they're saying, and why are they voting for them? That helps you understand market psychology, right? Like at the end of the day, it's humans that are investing their money into investment theses. And like you, you have to understand what other people think in order to glean a, a, a proper thesis and understand like where the markets might be going. And so it's this microcosm of that same thing where no investment is done in isolation. You're also deciding like, if I like this thesis, what is it? How much do I like it compared to other theses? And the market game allows for you know, six ideas to be presented at once and you can kind of compare and contrast and then you have to to pick one. And so it's kind of like 
the market, like the actual stock market, but in a smaller sense so that you can kind of understand, like, here's all these different options. Which one do I like? The voting is like people buying stocks and, uh, of, you know, there's a winner crowned, but it's, it's this fun way to meet other people, hear six ideas at the same time, ask your questions and, uh, yeah, you know, learn a lot about investing in the process. Yeah, that's great. And I think, you know, everybody enjoys a little bit of competition too. And, uh, you know, once you get out of uh, the school setting, it's either, you know, just competitive where trying to move up in work or, or what, or, you know, just trying to be right uh, against the market. Whereas uh, here, you know, like you said, it's a little bit more uh, of a discussion and you're competing against other people, which, uh, you know, everybody enjoys every now and then, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think it's great. I, I think uh, it's just, you know, kind of continues the trend of, of what common stocks all about just sharing ideas and, and having that open forum discussion, which I think, you know, like we've been hammering home, it, it's extremely powerful. Hmm. So now let's get into some of your personal um, investing ideas and personal, uh, I, I guess, investing uh, theses. So um, are there any specific trends that you're looking at uh, as far as uh you know, investing goes like what um, kind of uh, industries and uh, maybe companies or things like that, that are, you're looking into as of late? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first thing that I'd, I'd bring up is the, uh, the energy trend and specifically the Canadian oil mafia. So I want to give a shout out to them specifically because I, I think that so the Canadian oil mafia is this group on Twitter that holds these regular Twitter spaces talking about energy and specifically usually Canadian oil companies, but oil in general and, and energy in general. Uh, and so in the last year, energy has done very well. Tech has done very poorly. And I think that the, the reason why I'm interested in this trend is I would say that, you know, for a lot of my, you know, early looking into like climate change and, and uh, the way that technology is advancing and solar, my stance would would have been, hey, we really need to get off of oil. We need to really move to a world where we're using sustainable energy. And I still totally believe that, right? Like, I think we need to take care of the environment. We need to be very careful about the the ways that we use energy and what that's doing to our environment. The Canadian oil mafia makes the point, though, that if you look at the the ways that we can transition to sustainable energy sources, oil and non-renewable energy sources are going to enable that transition. And there, like, and I don't really want to get into the the whole argument of, of do we need to go cold turkey? Like, is it is it too late? Um, you know, there's there's so much research about you know, how catastrophic a four, uh, four degree increase in temperature and global temperatures would be catastrophic for the human race. Three degree increase, still incredibly terrible. Two, the world has changed and, uh, but like, you know, survivable. And I think we're headed there now. And, and one, I think we're already at, and you already see some, some changes, how, you know, coastal uh, populations are going to need to move elsewhere. There's going to be huge changes, right? So the the whole the argument about like, do we really need to go cold turkey and just use no oil? Is that what we need to do right now? I, I'm not an expert enough to say if that's the case. And I know that that is uh, a uh, 
an argument that some would make. But the, the, the thing is that if we do try and make this transition without oil, it will probably take longer because of how efficient oil is at creating, you know, energy and sol solar panels. And, and even if you move to a, a sustainable future where you're using electric cars, it's just not very realistic to say that like oil will not be part of that at all. And so we're looking at these big, hairy problems and they're very political and they're very socially and emotionally charged. And I think a lot of the energy in the Canadian oil mafia is actually partly because uh, for a whole decade, they've just been really um, shut out, right? Like there's so much investment that's gone into solar and renewable energy sources and, you know, oil projects have just been left by the wayside. And, the, and people who work in the oil industry are like, hey, come on, like, uh, there's no respect here for me. And, and I'm trying to help solve the problem. And so as oil has these massive returns over the last year, it's kind of validation. It's like, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's kind of like, ah, I told you so, like, we're, you're gonna need, you're gonna need us to do this transition. And so I think that, like, again, I'm, I'm all about like bringing, you know, understanding the humanity of both sides. I think when we villainize the opposite side, we can't get anything done. And again, I see on Twitter where a lot of these exchanges are not productive. And I really want to humanize both the, the side that thinks that oil is, is, you know, the right way to go and the, the side that's like cold turkey, let's get it off. I think, I think we need to understand where both are coming from and to figure out, uh, you know, what, what can be done where, you know, we're, we're moving to a sustainable future that makes sense for the world. That's a little bit idealist. That's, you know, uh, not an expert on either, either side, but I, I do think that that conversation is an important one. And when it comes to investing and, and these trends, I do think that energy is, is going to be such an important piece that investing in energy companies and having that be somewhat of a position in your portfolio is going to be uh, a probably a pretty good call. So uh, I am looking pretty closely at both Canadian and uh, American oil companies as part of my portfolio uh, and, you know, still doing research in that, in that area. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, definitely a hot button topic right now to say the least, especially with, you know, uh, the way the tr trends of, uh, you know, the way oil and gas is going um, up in the United States and other, other things um, like that as well. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, it seems like, um, you know, it'll be difficult to go cold turkey, but uh, it's it's kind of interesting that it, although you're you're looking at this industry, it's kind of like how you look at you know almost everything. It's like you need to understand both sides, and uh, that's how you can kind of make your own um, you know logical decision and make your own uh, you know, thoughts on the industry as a whole. Um, and it seems like uh, at least from what I know, it, it seems like it's been doing pretty well for you, at, at least as of late. So uh, that's awesome to hear. And uh, yeah, maybe the trend will continue. And I hope uh, for, for your portfolio's sake that it does as well. So um, are there any other uh, industries that you're kind of getting into um, or maybe uh, just, I guess, some overall trends um, that you're looking at, whether it's, uh, uh, I guess, just human behavior or anything like that? Yeah, so I, I'm a, and I know you'll you'll like this, but I, I like uh, the blockchain space, Bitcoin and Ethereum. I actually wanted to kind of ask you, I don't think we've had conversations about, you know, your, you know, most interesting areas. But right now I am 
quite interested in Ethereum and the merge and a lot like we could go into so many different directions here. Um, but yeah, I actually wanted to hear from you. Are you because I, th I th are you, would you say you're more of a, a Bitcoin person, Ethereum, or how do you think about the blockchain space? Yeah, so I'm I'm a I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, nice. So I think uh, I think Bitcoin's the way to go, and I think um, you know the centralization of Ethereum definitely worries me. And I know that you know there's a lot of developers and people working really hard to try to you know create the Web three, and and I think uh, the development aspect is very uh, I guess on top of the Ethereum network is very powerful, but I think that because uh you know it is so easy to develop on top of the ethereum network it's just making it uh you know a little bit harder for each of these tokens to come on and i think uh you know a lot of the fees and uh and everything like that are, are kind of increasing on ethereum um so a lot of uh the the way i view it is i i i view bitcoin and um you know bitcoin as a whole as as the mission to kind of bring um you know, easier rails of payments and uh, helping uh, people, you know, necessarily that are that are affected by uh, inflation and other things to have a more sound and, and hard money. So um, that's why I'm Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. It's, uh, you know, maybe there, there's been better returns from Ethereum as of late. Um, but I think that the power behind Bitcoin is not just you know, being able to build on top of it or anything. It's also, you know, the, the ability to transact. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, headwind behind the, um, you know, Ethereum and, and blockchain space as well. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of development in these coins and a lot of development in, you know, maybe, maybe some of the smaller ones, maybe not Ethereum exactly, but, uh, you know, maybe some of the smaller ones um, that, you uh, you know, like you said earlier, you're hearing about a lot of these big rug pulls and, and things like that. So um, when it, when people ask me about, uh, you know, Bitcoin and crypto as a whole, I, I kind of just always sway them to Bitcoin and Bitcoin only and, and to, to, to do your own research and, and look into why. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, honestly, I came into it for a little bit just trying to uh, you know, make make some money as everybody always does, you know, whether it's investing in one thing or another. Uh, and I kind of uh, stuck around in Bitcoin and, and just keep adding to my Bitcoin position um, because of the sound money and the uh, underlying technology uh, that Bitcoin uh, offers. So I love it. So and this is also like kind of the understanding because I so I um, totally agree with you. The Bitcoin that I bought, I've never sold. Still a huge believer have gotten into some of the Ethereum and, and altcoin stuff, but um, understanding Bitcoin and people who stay at Bitcoin and Bitcoin only is, is super important to me. So one thing that I would ask you is what, um, what is your vision or what do you think Bitcoin will do about like, so it's going to be the sound money, but I, I really love the idea of being able to have a programmable money. Is Bitcoin going to be able to have programmable capabilities because of layers on top or will itself be able to do that or is it not important to do that because it's so important to have sound money how do you think through whether or not that that's important and if it's possible and and that kind of thing 
Yeah. So, um, you know, right now there's uh, a layer two technology called the Lightning Network, which I think is, uh, you know, extremely powerful for just transactions. Um, so there's a lot of uh, various things. I'm actually having a discussion in one of my group chats with some some buddies that, uh, you know, Strike just recently announced a partnership with Shopify, uh, for those who don't know, um, to essentially allow you to pay over the Lightning Network, um, which essentially... Uh, just lowers the extreme fees uh, that, you know, when you swipe your credit card, whether it's Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or, you know, one of these other credit card companies, that company always takes a 3% fee on the swipe. So you pay a merchant $100 that Visa, MasterCard gets, you know, $3 from that transaction. And that happens every single transaction wherever. And that doesn't include, you know, maybe some point of sale um, place that, you know, charges a little bit extra here or there as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, right now, especially with, uh, you know, as inflation, uh, is kind of running rampant throughout, you know, the United States and, and globally as a whole, um, businesses, especially small businesses are going to try to find ways to, to save money. And one of those ways is, uh, you know, I believe is the lightning network. Um, because I could send you, for example, a hundred dollars, um, through Bitcoin, um, and you could essentially never touch Bitcoin. I could send $100 through a Strike app or through Cash app or something like that, and it'll go directly into your account um, through, over the Lightning Network. So it'll be transacted and kind of Strike or another company will buy Bitcoin in the background and then uh, sell it and give it give you the U.S. dollars straight back and only charge a, you know, a small amount of fee. Um which is, you know, just maybe a, a couple sats or satoshis, uh, as I call it, which are just little bits of Bitcoin, which, um, you know, in the end will be less than 1% of that. So uh, I think, you know, as a whole, like the Lightning Network is extremely powerful. And I think that that point of sale is, uh, you know, vital for um, when it comes to the argument in the United States and other big countries, Um but at the same time, you know, the United States has the most to lose when it comes to losing the global reserve currency. So, um, you know, we, we do have some uh, countries now kind of coming along to Bitcoin um, as a whole. And, uh, you know, El Salvador has made it legal tender recently. And then uh, today it was actually announced that uh, the Central African Republic, I believe, uh, is the name, announced it as legal tender as well. Um and so uh, I think a lot of these smaller countries are going to start making it legal tender, and that'll just kind of force some of the bigger players to either have to interact with Bitcoin in some way, shape or form, or, um, you know, uh, just kind of keep keep on going and, and figuring it out. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what we've seen is that um, a lot of the regulation and people in charge, um, you know, not, not to get political or anything, but, you know, like Jerome Powell and the Fed chairman, they're not elected officials. So at the end of the day, whether you're, you know, Biden, Trump or, or whoever, Republican, Democratic, you in, uh, vote in a president or whoever, and they name people who kind of, uh, you know, help your, your policy. So Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, he was both under Trump and now under Biden. So whether you like him or not, uh, he was under both sides of the coin too. So uh, I think the way that um, you know, people are kind of waking up to, uh, you know, the inflationary times uh, that we're in, that, uh, you know, the manip manipulation of the money supply, how much money that has been, quote unquote, printed in the past uh, couple years, um, 
you know, whether you want to use COVID excuse or not, um, you know, the money was was printed at the end of the day. Uh, and uh, everybody received or a lot of people received some sort of stimulus checks. Companies received these big loans. And uh, at the end of the day, the small guy has to kind of deal with the inflation. And so I think, uh, you know, having somewhat of this, the, uh, you know, the sound money principles, I think, is extremely powerful for especially the little guy, um, you know, um, and uh, whether the Bitcoin becomes legal tender in the United States or the U.S. dollar becomes backed by Bitcoin, I think there's definitely um, some room to grow in uh, in that area. And I think that the overarching, um, you know, money and uh, the way we transact and, and, and things like that has has a lot of room to, for, for change and improvement. And so that's, uh, I guess, kind of my long winded answer to all that. So I think, uh, yeah, there's there's some technology that's already been built that makes it more powerful. And I think that the sound money principles as a whole are just, uh, you know, extremely valuable for for uh, everybody as a whole, but especially, uh, you know, the, the middle to lower class. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And it's just funny uh, because you'd think that, um, you know, it, it is so clear that after printing $9 trillion and now we're seeing inflation, you, you'd think that like it'd be such an obvious trade to be buying gold like in 2020, 2021. And gold was actually down 4% that year because everyone was buying digital gold. Uh, it, it's just so clear that like the, I mean, so clear, so clear to maybe younger people like us who understand the benefits of, of Bitcoin over gold um, and the sound money principles in the environment where money printing is just so huge and inflation is a tax on mostly the poor, but it's an, it's a tax on everyone. And the way to avoid that is to have an uncorrelated outside of system asset and Bitcoin totally represents that. Uh, so that, yeah, I'm totally with you there all the way. Yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, more people are, are waking up to, to inflation and kind of taking a step back and realizing like, Hey, you know, whether, you know, it's a grocery bill or, or something along the lines or going to the gas station, like, okay, um, you know, I used to buy groceries for my family for $100, $200, and now it's $50 more. Uh, you know, why is that? Why are everything around me kind of going up? Um, you know, even prices like Big Macs and, and other things that are generally looked at as very cheap are still, you know, increasing in, uh, in price. And, you know, anecdotally here in, in Tampa, Florida, where I'm at, I, I go to local restaurants or I try to uh, a good amount. And a lot of times we'll see, um, you know, signs that uh, behind the registers that say, you know, I this uh, this pricing has increased by X amount due to inflation, um, you know, just like, please be understanding. And then sometimes they even have it on like a chalkboard instead of just a sign. So you can tell they've erased it a little bit. And instead of $1, it's $2 or, or something like that. So um, I know a lot of these small businesses are hurting. And I hope for, you know, the, the restaurant stays in my taste buds uh, sake, uh, selfishly, that they're they're able to stay open. And I think, you know, maybe that that three percent fee that they that pay to Visa, MasterCard or whoever, um, you know, could be a point where they, they save a little bit of money. And uh, yeah, might might be able to help save a few restaurants. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, overall, I, I'm a big believer in the Bitcoin space and uh 
Yeah, I, d- I definitely, uh, I, I get really passionate, but normally I try to keep this one to, to just, uh, you know, stocks or everything like that. So, um, you know, this audience might get, get a little bit side of that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I love asking questions about this. And actually, I got one more interesting one for you is that because this is, again, going to the whole our overarching theme of understanding the other side. What what would be something that you would see happening that would make you reevaluate uh, Bitcoin? Is there anything like that? Um, just a little more context. So I would say I'm most excited about Ethereum right now, but seeing like Solana have it, you know, solving a portion of the scalability problem by forfeiting even more security, <laughs> um, you know, m- makes me go, okay, so what what would need me to change from saying like, oh, I think Ethereum is going to be the best uh, chain and then, and then realize like, ah, I got to be humble and think like maybe another chain could, could do something. And so I'm constantly trying to re- reassess and say, what do, what do I see that makes me, that would make me change my mind? And like for Ethereum, seeing uh, Ethereum be used as money for NFTs and like on OpenSea was so validating. And then I start seeing, you know, Solana kind of do it better or have, you know, lower transaction fees. And I go, okay, well, if this was a thing that made me so bullish on Ethereum, uh, do I need to take Solana seriously? So the question for you is, is what could you see out in the world that would make you say, okay, I need to reassess my Bitcoin only stance. Um, is there anything like that? Or do you think that philosophically uh, it's a it's a slippery slope and what is needed is to not get distracted and Bitcoin does need to be the, the, the thing, like you can solve all the problems that we want to solve on Bitcoin. We just need to not get distracted. Like, is it kind of one of those things or is there something that could happen where you'd say, all right, let me actually buy some of a different uh, of a different crypto asset? Yeah. So um, I think as far as other crypto assets go, um, it's going to be you know, pretty difficult for me to be convinced of uh, you know, having anything like that, because, um, you know, my background is is in engineering and uh you know, I'm not I wouldn't say I'm a developer or an expert coder or anything, but I know enough to know that, uh, you know, a blockchain at the end of the day is, is kind of an inefficient way to transact, but it's built to be that way. Um, so you can, you know, uh, you know, really understand it and track and, uh, you know, it, it's not really supposed to be like, um, you know, this this revolutionary technology like blockchains have been around for for a while. Um, and I think at the end of the day, a lot of things that are being developed right now um, don't really need to be on a blockchain. I think it's making it a little bit more difficult and uh, and it's making the transactions a little bit slower. And uh, yeah, I just think, uh, you know, there's, there's, it, it'll be a tough sell for me to get onto any other, I guess, crypto asset, just kind of um, from my viewpoint there. Um, and I also, you know, truly believe in the philosophical stance of Bitcoin. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if, if something needs to be developed, it can, it can be developed on the Bitcoin network to kind of help. Um, and I think everything that's, you know, could be useful on a blockchain um, as far as like, you know, for, for transactions or anything like that um, can be built on the Bitcoin network. And then um, I guess a bare argument that I could think of, you know, uh, for Bitcoin as a whole um, 
although I'm very bullish, I, I would hate to see it become somewhat centralized. Um, so a lot of people kind of make the argument that Michael Saylor and uh, MicroStrategy is buying up a lot. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think he has a little bit over 4,000 Bitcoin, which is quite a bit, uh, quite a bit in U.S. dollar value. But at the end of the day, uh, 19 million have been have been minted already or mined. Um but uh, earlier last or last year, I, be, I believe, I don't remember the exact time, but we saw China ban Bitcoin mining. And at that time, um, there was a massive amount of the Bitcoin mining hash rate that was in China. Um, I believe it was pretty close to almost half. Um, and uh, that was kind of the biggest uh, bear argument that I could see at that time. But China banning Bitcoin mining, I believe, actually helped the decentralization. Um, so the only thing, uh, you know, I guess I could see is like maybe um, a bunch of miners decide to move to uh, a perceived more uh, safe ge geopolitical site, like maybe the United States or or Canada or, or somewhere, um, you know, along this side. Um, but at the end of the day, I think... Uh, you know, that that kind of helped show that although, uh, you know, countries are trying to, to ban it or regulate it or what, um, you know, Bitcoin is so decentralized that uh, it can't really be stopped. So we saw a big dip in the price initially and in, in the hash rate. But um, like I said, at the end of the day, I think that that kind of helped. And that was kind of my last big bear argument that I was really worried about when I first um, was investing in Bitcoin. But um, now it's just, I, I think it's just kind of been through the ringer. And I think, um, you know, part of my newsletter that I have is, uh, the state of Bitcoin. And we, uh, at the bottom, um, I link a, I think it's like seven or eight, like just general FUD arguments that you see. Um, and, you know, one of them's like the ESG narrative that's kind of going around right now. Um, and, and, you know, others are like governments that, uh, governments regulating it and kind of putting a halt to it. So, um, I kind of went through that exercise as to, you know, why is or what could happen uh, and what do people say could happen that that could be the end to Bitcoin. And I kind of, uh, you know, went through and, and really took a dive into to each one of those to make sure, you know, for myself that, uh, you know, although it's perceived as really volatile and risky and things like that, I think that at the end of the day, it's a very strong asset and uh, it has a lot of power behind it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it'll be hard to kind of convince me the other way to go to any other crypto or move away from, from Bitcoin only, I think right now. So, and so what I'm hearing though, is that if Bitcoin did meaningfully move to a centralized, like if you're like, all right, it's getting very centralized now, that would be a, a cause for concern. That doesn't, it looks like it's getting more, it's, it's moving in the right direction. It's becoming more decentralized. Um, but let's say China didn't ban Bitcoin and in fact tried to monopolize the, the mining and like 90% of mining was happening in China. That's a situation where you would say, hey, the whole reason I'm, I'm bullish on Bitcoin, the whole reason I, I believe in its values is that decentralization piece. If that was to get co-opted, then that would be a situation where you'd go, let me reevaluate. Is that kind of, is that valid? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think like the decentralization aspect of it is huge. And I think... Uh, yeah, exactly. Just like you're saying, if for some reason all the miners move to one place, um, but you know, uh, I think at the end of the day too, it's, 
becoming more decentralized as like, you know, we're having bigger companies like Square and Block get into uh, Square slash Block, you know, after the name change, they're getting into Bitcoin mining and trying to build, uh, you know, at home Bitcoin miners. Um, so it, it would be tough to see like a company or a country that kind of gets regulated, um, like kind of centralize all that mining power and uh, all the Bitcoin uh, hash rate. But um, yeah, I think uh, if, if that were to happen, yeah, that would be my uh, that would be my bear case. for. The for good news is that it's becoming less and less likely and that it's, that reality is becoming very unlikely. So that's that's good. Yeah. For, yeah. for me in Ethereum, I'd say that the execution risk of the merge, I think that if we saw, you know, something going really wrong there with like um, hacks or security or issuance going crazy or, you know, there's just so much execution risk in, in the, the transition that they're trying to do from proof of work to proof of stake. Like if I were to see that get really um, blown up and, and have there be some huge bugs in the code or you know, centralization to really uh, increase because proof of stake has a lot of concerns about that. I would I would also say I'd reevaluate um, Ethereum. Um, so so there's there's me kind of answering my own question about, you know, what what could I see happen where I would kind of lose faith and, and move away from it? I gotcha. Cool. Well, yeah. All right. Enough about uh, all this blockchain and, and Bitcoin stuff. Um, let's get into, I guess, some uh, uh, people and like how you view the market and maybe some, um, I guess, market or investor type trends. Um, so do you view, uh, I guess, or have you looked into any kind of patterns, whether it comes to, you know, maybe gender specific men and women or race or uh, age cohorts, whether it's you know, millennials versus Gen Z or you know, what have you, uh, how they kind of view the markets and invest? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting how men and women invest differently. Um, women actually tend to invest more conservatively. I think the stat is that uh, the average woman keeps 68% of her portfolio in cash and cash equivalents compared to 59% for the average man's portfolio, which I think is amazing because like I checked mine and I was like 6% cash. And so I'm like not even close to what the average guy is. And so that just shows you like there's so much deviation. But anyway, I think that like when you're holding um, all the other variables and controlling just for gender, that that's a pretty substantial difference uh, in cash weighting, um, which is just so interesting. Um, research also kind of shows that women are less impulsive investors than men and reports show that women make fewer trades and even log into their investment accounts less often than men. And that ends up contributing to them having superior returns. The stat that I was seeing that it was 1% better. And I was actually trying to figure out like, okay, is this study saying 1% better per year or just over the lifetime? Because that's a very different compounding. Um, but the research that I've seen is in general, there's, there's, it sounds like a slight difference where men that women are outperforming men. And one of the possible reasons for that is, is the activity. I think that's important because, you know, I get very intellectually interested in the markets and I have a lot of fun um, learning. And it's just so funny to think that that costs me money possibly <laughs> because it leads me to a behavior of more active trading that ends up actually hurting my returns over the long period of time. And that is a area of cognitive dissonance for me that I think I will be thinking about for my entire life is that, you know, I tend to think that, ah, oh, 
lifelong learning and being interested in the markets uh, is good because as an intellectual pursuit, I think the, the connection is like, it will help you with your returns over the long run or something about that is wholesome and good. But if it hurts your returns, then maybe the uh, thing that you should take away from that is actually like to be less into the markets. So that was just one, one interesting thing um, I wanted to kind of chat about. Also, just because uh, women are less um, interested in the markets as a whole, like as a as a community manager, I'm, I'm very interested in, in understanding why so few women are uh, financial content creators and why there's less just the, the type of discussion that you see women having about investing is much more about personal finance and, you know, broad like savings tips and tax tax tips. And then the men are all like, what should I buy in? What stock ticker? Like, let me, and it's, it's very, you know, aggressive and competitive and it's just a totally different um, feel and vibe. And so, again, I, when I see two different um, communities acting in different ways, my inclination is like, how do we, how do we bring these together and how can you learn from both? Uh, and so I, I want there to be more of a, uh, more of a conversation between, you know, these investing styles and what is the best way to be. Uh, and can we find that out through discussion? Um, and I don't see a lot of discussion about that. I think it's it's partly because it's a hot button. It, it's a it's a touchy topic. Uh, gender is is tough to uh, speak about because it, it gets very um, yeah. It's it's tough to talk about, right? So uh, when it comes to those types of conversations, I'm always thinking about like how can we have that discussion where we're not attacking each other and we're just simply trying to learn about uh, what the opposite side is. So, so that's another um, theme that I get very interested in. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, uh, you know, your experience and your position as community manager kind of is along those lines of those themes, um, which makes sense. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there is such drastic difference, but, you know, being in the uh, content creation space, I do notice that, you know, it's just mostly all men, which, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, it's, it's good and bad. Uh, yeah. It's easier to, I guess, for me to, to reach out to, not feel, I guess, somebody feels type of some type of way or feels weird or attacked or something like that when it's that awkward conversation between the different sexes or genders. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely room for, you know, maybe somebody with a, a female voice to, to come in and, uh, you know, give some discussions. And I know it'll be taken a little bit differently because I uh, just, you know, from when I talk to my sisters about uh, investing, uh, they take it a little bit differently than when my mom tells them, uh, you know, that they should get invested too. So I think that that conversation uh, can definitely be uh, powerful. And I think, you know, just having open forum discussions, like we've been saying, is just, uh, you know, so valuable. So I hope we see some more uh, women content creators get out there and uh, encourage uh, other females to get invested. And, and there are a lot of them, and there are very, very good ones. Um, and so there's no painting with a broad brush, right? There's, there's uh, be people like Beth Kindig, who just trounce, uh, you know, the, the intellectual capacity of like a lot of like men, and so, yeah, but yeah, I, I personally would love to see uh, more women investors and content creators, but it's also possible that my, my own personal bubble just keeps me from that, that like, I'm not seeing a whole section of, of people. And, and so I'm, 
looking into to finding more and elevating more voices like that um, and want to see my own blind spots and, and get more exposed to lots of different viewpoints. So yeah, looking, looking forward to hopefully uh, seeing a lot more uh, female investors getting a lot more airtime in a lot of different platforms. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure there's a lot of out there that uh, you know, are definitely a whole lot smarter and know a lot more about the markets than I do as well. So um, that's great. Now, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about your Ethereum position um, earlier, but uh, let's get into where you've been right on other uh, companies or other investments. So have you been, um, you know, I guess, holding any others that you think that, you know, I definitely nailed this one on the head, whether it's uh, a stock or another crypto or anything along those lines? Yeah. So Tesla 2019 would be one that I, I got right. Um, that uh, was a fun one because it was very much like a counter positioning psychological investment. So at the time, there was a lot of worry about whether or not Tesla would go out of business. And there were just a lot of bears talking about the demise of Tesla and how it's it's uh, it's just got no future. And so from viewing kind of like how many Teslas I was seeing on the road and looking at, you know, the financials, which weren't great, like it, there was reason to be concerned. Uh, and then comparing that with the bearishness, bear, like it was it was the cool, it was the right thing. It was the broadly held opinion that Tesla was going out of business. And whenever I see lots of really smart people um, talk about the same thing in the same way, I get skeptical. Um, and sometimes I even get intimidated because a lot, you know, smart people are smart and their their thesis sound smart. But when everyone's saying kind of the same thing, um, I tend to think about the risk reward of going in the opposite direction. And so took a pretty big position in Tesla in 2019 and, uh, you know, and it, it like 10 X, right. From 2019 to 2020, you know, it's come down a lot since, but it, it was like the right trade. And I think the takeaway there is you, you can be really smart and you can be really right and still not do not have the right trade because you didn't realize that if everyone is on the side of that trade, then you're probably um, you're probably going with the herd and the money is actually going to be made in the opposite direction. Uh, yeah, so that that was uh, that was one that went that went really well. That's awesome. Yeah, like, that's great. Um, and I think, you know, I think more and more people are kind of uh, jumping on the Tesla bandwagon now. So, um, you know, hopefully <clears throat> it still has some success. And I am a believer in Elon and I think he's going to do great things and uh, the diversification of the business too is just great. So I think uh, as a whole, <clears throat> some might view it as just a car company, but it's definitely got a, a, a lot of other aspects of this business that, um, you know, makes it a little bit more diversified. And I always like those big businesses that have uh, various sources of revenue because it seems like, all right, if one sector of the business fails, it's not as big of a deal. Um, so yeah. Great. Um, now, on the flip side, uh, where have you been wrong? Um, and if you've been wrong on any of them, on any stock um, recently, uh, are you still holding on to them? Or, uh, you know, how do you go about uh, deciding when to sell a stock or a position? 
definitely. There's been a lot of those examples, especially in the last six months. I think everything since November, a lot of my tech bets have been down. Three big examples that are Roku, DocuSign, and Teladoc. Uh, Roku specifically hurts a lot because I had written a, a long memo on common stock about them, I think in like July of last year. And I'm still holding on and they're just down. So like probably, so they're a lot, probably 50 or 60%. The the idea with Roku is kind of this move away from cable and to streaming and the, the tailwinds of the ability for Roku to be a operating system for the TV. And I still think that that's the direction that we're moving in. Um, I think that it just makes so much more sense for advertisers, for content, for platforms to be digital and be streaming as opposed to being analog and cable. Like that's just still a broad theme. I think it's going to be um, happening. I've been wrong mostly because of the macro environment repricing a lot of tech names and just stocks in general. And uh, I'm, I'm still trying to reevaluate, like with Netflix losing um, subscribers for the first time in like a decade, actually being net negative subscriber ads, is, is there still as much of a tailwind as I thought? Um, and so I'm obviously reevaluating and, and thinking about, you know, is it time to let go of that position? But so far still holding on because I think that the big repricing is mostly a macro thing. And if we were to see, uh, you know, something out of our control, like, you know, the way that the Fed, it would be tough to see them doing, you know, more money printing. And I'm not a fan of that. I wouldn't want them to do that. But there are big macro things that could happen that would put us right back to where we were in mid last year. And I, I am not super excited about getting rid of a position that's only been affected by macro when there could be a snapback. Um, but you know, as is investing, there's always a lot of uncertainty. Um, with DocuSign and Teladoc, it, the story is pretty similar as far as the repricing. Uh, there's more concern with Teladoc that that um, the value add that they they give as a as a um, way to connect to doctors online is, is that even really uh, a defensible position? My personal view is the the Livongo side of that business when they they merge. That's the more exciting part and watching if that's going to take more of the value proposition and the narrative in the future. Um, so far, that's not been the case. Uh, and then DocuSign also, I think, is is one where it's just so clear to me, at least, that contracts are moving more online and digital and uh, that that's just going to be kind of the way the future is, that that's got like a long-term trend and tailwind. But, you know, the timing of buying that could have been wrong. The... Uh, conviction that I've got in how quickly we'll move to a world where contracts are only done digitally might have been wrong. And so, uh, so far been been super down on those. And we'll see. It's always exciting to see what the future will hold. So we'll be watching and seeing how they do. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think we're we're in for some interesting times ahead, as you kind of mentioned. Uh and it's a, a lot of things that will affect uh, stock market and, you know, just general sectors, too, as a whole, uh, you know, kind of pointed to inflation, whether Fed's going to raise or lower rates or, you know, maybe print, print some more money. Who knows? Um, at this point, it seems like, um, you know, maybe they're, they're trending and not doing that direction of printing more money, but crazier things have happened. And um, it's definitely not out of the question for sure. So. Um, yeah, Nathan, 
Uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we've ran a little longer than an hour now, but uh, I appreciate all your time. Um, why don't you uh, sign us off and tell people where to find you and uh, where to find out more information about you and uh, everything you got going on? Yep. So you can uh, find me on Stock at Nathan Warden. Definitely give the platform a look. Go check it out. Uh, check out the awesome research that's happening on there and the transparent sharing and the thoughtfulness and the collaborative discussion. Uh, check out Common Stock. I'm on there as at Nathan Warden and definitely uh, follow, I think it's Green Candle uh, Lit. I mean, you should give your, your handle too, but uh, another yeah. great account to follow. It's uh, yeah, at Green Candle IT. So uh, both uh, that on Common Stock and on Twitter to, to make it easier for everybody. But yeah, uh, definitely follow me on there and uh, join the platform and see a lot of people sharing their ideas back and forth. Um, so Nathan, thanks again for your time and, uh, thanks for joining me here and, uh, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much. It's been an awesome time. Awesome.